You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. you to open your Bibles to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. I always like to make sure our guests know that if you're new to Christianity or exploring Christianity, really glad for you to be here with us. Definitely want you to be part of this conversation that we're going to have in the Word of God. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to have one, we have those available at the Welcome Center. Uh, those are there for you for free. You can take it with you. It's in the translation that I'm reading from, the English Standard Version. Um, it's our practice to go through the Scriptures and really unpack and understand the Word of God and have our lives reflect that that understanding is bearing fruit. Matthew 24 is where we're going to be. Everyone wants to know, if we think about the future, We just got finished talking about Grace Church's future. It's in the Lord's hands. We do not know. We make plans, but the Lord directs our steps. As we like to say, we write in pencil and give God the eraser. But as we like to think about the future, everybody wants to know the future in different ways. Will I be married? Will I have children? Will I ever graduate from college? Will I have enough money in my retirement account when I retire? to sustain my financial needs throughout my life for the rest of my life? What will my health look like? Will my health fail? These are the questions people are asking all the time about their future. There's countless others to be asked. One particular interest that people have about the future is, what about all the corporations and the businesses? What about all the investment opportunities? What's going to boom and what's going to bust? Where should we invest now and where should we stay away from Staying clear of. There are the well-known examples. Companies like Apple, if you first bought Apple stock when it was first offered at $22 a share, you're pretty happy right now that it's sitting at $162 a share. Facebook, with its $38 of IPO, initial public offering, now sitting at $303. Tesla, with its $17 a share, now at $943. And then there's Amazon, you know, another one of those garage businesses. And that company went public at $18 a share. Its shares now are at $2,852 a share. Some of you are thinking, why did I not invest? I was like, I did. And you're welcome to come sit on my front porch in the future. Investing with options and futures. What should we expect The truth is you don't know. You think you know, but a lot of people thought they know, and then when they invest, oh, man, they lose it all. And it's tragic. I know of people's lives who have gambled so much on the future in such a reckless and irresponsible way that has left them penniless and in much pain. Well, what if I could tell you not only where to invest your assets, but also where to invest your life that you would be guaranteed to get back more than you have ever given and could ever give, that it was a sure thing. Well, friends, I'm not going to tell it to you because Jesus is. In Matthew chapter 24, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, 
particularly last week as we resumed in the book of Matthew, working our way through Matthew 1 all the way to the end of Matthew 28. These are the eyewitness records of one of Jesus' disciples named Matthew and recognizing the teachings of Christ. One of the teachings of Christ, many, many teachings rather, of Christ. Matthew 24 is what we saw last week as the Olivet Discourse. It's not because Jesus is sitting on a pile of olives called the Mount of Olives. It's because where he's at geographically in this place in the hills is known for its olive trees. And this is where he's having this conversation with his disciples because they've posed a question to him. Actually, a series of questions because he made a radical statement about the temple because they were talking about the temple from architectural impressiveness, like, check out that temple. He's like, speaking of the temple, that's not going to be standing in the future. Not a stone upon a stone will be there. Wait, what? We got questions. We saw last week in verses 3 and following, the questions began and the answers began as well. Last week, we began this series in Matthew 24 and 25, particularly titled, Return of the King. We return to that this morning, the return of the king. Because chapters 24 and 25 are intended to give Jesus' disciples a prophetic overview of the events that will take place in both the near and distant future. And I want to just break it down for us this morning as we pick back up where we left off, specifically in verses 15 through all the way down to verse 35. First of all, we need to learn, be aware of growing wickedness. Be aware of growing wickedness. Look with me at Matthew 24, verse 15. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field nor not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Continuing, But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. We will stop there for our purposes for right now. Jesus, in summary fashion, is teaching his disciples, and therefore we are learning today as the word has been given and preserved on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we should be aware of growing wickedness. Growing wickedness. We do not be surprised by that. Look at what it says here in verse 15. He introduces this category of abomination of the desolation. This is kind of a serious phrase here. It just sounds so over the top. The abomination of the desolation. 
Sounds like an old school metal band or something. What's actually been spoken about here is what we actually talked about earlier in Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Now, to give you a sense of orientation, for those of you who are not familiar with the scriptures, prior to this time in history, many hundreds of years before, there are various prophets that God raised up amongst the people of Israel to speak to the people of Israel and then through those people to be able to speak to the nations around them, ultimately to the whole world. Well, one such prophet was a man named Daniel. Now, Daniel didn't sort of grow up in a good context. Daniel grew up basically as a slave. He was taken into captivity with all the other Jewish people by non-Jewish sort of overlords who captured them, arrested them, and then made them work in the temple. And Daniel and some of his friends were quite gifted, quite intelligent, quite capable, and the Lord blessed them and protected them and used them in these kind of places. And we continue to see how God used Daniel to give a prophecy to the leaders at that time and for the years to come. Well, in the book of Daniel, throughout several chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11, there's a continued reference to this abomination of desolation. Well, here is Jesus talking about it. Now, what's interesting that I don't want you to miss, because I think sometimes it could just be assumed, look at how Jesus refers to Daniel. Jesus calls Daniel a prophet. This is a sidebar that I don't want you to miss on the reality that even Jesus is endorsing the reality of who Daniel was. There are many people today who think that that is just some type of human writing, some ultra mythological tales, but indeed from the scriptures we see, even Jesus himself acknowledges the gift of scripture, acknowledges what it is, even his act himself says back in Matthew chapter five that he did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it, not, not, not a dot or a, jittle, a tittle be passed away, that he will fulfill it. Instead, what we see here is Jesus saying, hey, listen to Daniel. In fact, he says, Daniel's talking about the abomination of desolation, and I want to explain it to you. The abomination of desolation is this expression reoccurring in a variety of ways, and it's basically describing what's going to take place in the temple. Now, if you don't understand this, again, hard to conceive it if you're not familiar with Christianity, not familiar with Judaism to recognize this, but there was a time and a place in the city of Jerusalem, in the land of Israel, where there was a temple that was built by God's people as an expression of worship unto him. And when they worshiped him, part of how God described that they should worship him in the book of Leviticus is they should give offerings, sometimes animal offerings, sometimes grain offerings, variety of offerings, as an expression that whatever they held dear, they gave to the Lord. That they needed atonement, they needed covering, that they were not enough. They had to give something to God because they needed to deal with their own sin. Well, the abomination of the desolation is talking about a time in history when that temple will be destroyed, when that temple will be desecrated, when that temple will be treated wrongly in a sacrilegious manner. Throughout history, some have tried to explain when this has taken place or will take place. Some believe that Jesus is talking about here as a reference to the desecration done by Antiochus Epiphanes when he built an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple and now he built an offer, an altar to a, to a pagan god in the Jewish temple, but then he purposely sacrificed pigs on top of the altar. He did this because he knew that it would be profaning the people of Israel's God. The same leader at this time decreed an altar to the Olympian Zeus and a statue of himself to be put in the temple 
It's one of the lowest points in Jewish history. That's taken place prior to the event that we're reading here in Matthew 24. But some believe that that's when Jesus is talking about that. Some have believed that Daniel's prophecy was being fulfilled when Emperor Gaius ordered that a gigantic statue of himself would be set up in the temple in Jerusalem. Though he was dissuaded from doing so by King Herod Agrippa, and he died in AD 41, about 10 years after this, before that would take place, that that was the abomination, even though it was not carried out. Some believe that it refers to the Romans around AD 70, about 40 years later from when Jesus is talking, because they would come into the city and completely destroy Jerusalem. In fact, if you would, keeping your finger in the book of Matthew, turn to the book of Luke, chapter 20. Excuse me, chapter 21. Look with me at Luke, chapter 21, verse 20. This is Luke's recording of the same conversation Jesus is giving that Matthew records in Matthew 24. This is Luke's retelling of the story. And he records Jesus as saying the following in Luke chapter 21, verse 20. Jesus saying, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and then know that its desolation has come near. From that text, it's believed by some that this passage that Matthew is talking about in Matthew 24 and the teachings of Jesus, that that was what indeed was being spoken of. Yet some have believed that it refers to a future time when the temple, which currently does not exist, will be first rebuilt for Jewish sacrifices to then be offered. And then after that has been done, then another leader will come in and offer false offerings in that temple and destroy that temple. Well, what we're seeing here, as we were reminded of last week, is Jesus' prophecy is an answer to both of the disciples' questions. He is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70 of what will come. But he looks beyond to a future time when another abomination causes a desolation which will arise in Jerusalem to lead God's people astray. How bad will it be? Well, as we see in verse 22, and if those those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. What you're seeing here in the text that Jesus is giving a, a mixture of prophetic elements that speak both to his generation he's talking to then and the future to come. And we heard even this morning in our reading of 2 Peter chapter 3 how a thousand years to us is like one day to the Lord. There's no delay. The Lord is always on time. So this is going to be such a bad time. Look at what it says in, verse, in chapter 24 that there's going to be such a destruction, verse 17, do not go down to the housetop, um, who's who's on the housetop, do not go down to take what's in the house, talking about fleeing the city, women who are pregnant, who are nursing infants, pray you're not going to have to go in the winter or on Sabbath, because it's going to be a great tribulation, as has not been from the beginning until now. As if that wasn't bad enough in these difficult days, look what happens ahead in verse 24. Verse 24, Jesus teaches about false Christs and false prophets. False Christs and false prophets. False messiahs, if you will. 
Jesus is once again doing in this text we did in an earlier text we saw from last week. The signs and miracles they perform will persuade many that they are from God. Friends, I think this is just an appropriate part to stop here and speak to those of you who are Christians to try to give you some biblical discernment to make sure you recognize that not everybody who says they're of God or from God actually is. Nobody who claims to be believing the truth, maybe even self-identifying with monikers like Christian, actually is. Even places that call themselves churches or people that self-identify as pastors actually are. This is a rabid problem throughout the world, especially here in South Florida in these days. Jesus is pointing to the reality that these will be a problem. What's sensational is that these people do seemingly the miraculous. These signs, these wonders, these indications of supernatural activity. But Jesus is saying here that Christians must be careful to not be deceived by Satan's work to lead people astray, to cause them to deny faith in Christ alone. Let me help give you, if I can, how to recognize, how to identify and detect false teaching or false teachers. It's not that hard in some sense, but it can be so distorted and so confusing, many people are sadly torn away. I remember reading a number of years ago that Mormons have the most success proselytizing, evangelizing, converting Baptists of all the people that they try to target. A number of explanations could be given to that. But let's be clear. We pray that it might not be true with us, that we might be clear and strong in the Scripture what the Word of God says. So let me help you by giving you four questions to answer when listening to someone's teaching. Who is God? Who is God? This is a significant question because there are people today who represent as if they believe in God, and they'll use words like Yahweh, Jehovah, they'll say yes, they'll say the words like Lord, but you have to tease that out. Too many Christians are unfamiliar with what actually other beliefs are to just actually think, what do they actually believe? So for example, if somebody does not believe in the Trinity, does not believe in the distinct persons of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that's heresy. No matter how happy the person is, no matter how nice the person is, that, that's heretical unorthodox teaching. You can't even get the gospel right because you don't have God right. Let alone if you believe in many gods like pantheism and religions like Hinduism and like, like that. So the question is, who do you say that God is? Cross-referencing those answers with Scripture. Not just some Scriptures, but all the Scriptures. They call me how a Jehovah's Witness will often kind of take something like the beginning of John chapter 1 and distort it to make Jesus not quite God like you think of him as being God, but actually being behold of God and that he came from God, but actually was never divine and eternal. The second question you can see there is, what is man's greatest problem? This gets to another way of asking the question, do you think sin is real? And how pervasive is it? What is man's greatest problem? to listen to false messiahs and prophets. Your greatest problem is not that you've not given enough money. Your greatest problem is not that you've not volunteered enough at your church. 
Your greatest problem is not that you're bitter with your spouse. Your greatest problem is not that you are ignorant and you just need more enlightenment. Your greatest problem is not on and on. It goes, your greatest problem is my greatest problem, and that is rebellion against the holy God. Acts of spiritual treason, or by my lips, by my thoughts, or by my actions, I am essentially trying to dethrone God and anoint myself and crown myself as king over all the world. You will not find false messiahs and false prophets giving an accurate view of God, giving an accurate view of man's problem. Thirdly, as you see there on the screen, who is Jesus? What has he done? One of the questions we often ask people when they want to become a member of the church is, who is Jesus Christ? Seems like a simple question. Uh, God's son? Okay, keep going. Um, perfect? Okay, keep going. One of the things we're looking for, in addition to those statements, we're looking for the belief in the actual resurrection. There's a lot of people today who call themselves Christians but don't believe Jesus actually resurrected from the grave. Do you know that if you believe that, then you don't believe the gospel? Do you know that 1 Corinthians 15 says that if, that if there is no resurrection, our faith is in vain? Like people, go home, go to breakfast, do something, don't be here. Without the resurrection, it's all a waste. Truth matters. The truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, what he is promising to do, it's profoundly important that you know who the Savior is and you know it well. Because you're not always going to be able to phone a friend or maybe call your elder. Ronald, help me. The fourth, what should we do in light of these truths? What should we do in light of these truths? Try better? Work harder? This comes down to the fundamental question, what can man do to be made right with God? If you could summarize it, all the religions of the world boil down to two. All of them. A religion by works and a religion by faith. Works no matter what you do, will never earn you enough righteousness to measure up to God's holiness. So you have to trust in somebody else's works, which is your faith, and that faith is itself not a work, it's Christ doing even that work. So your faith is in Christ. It's not your faith that's saving you, Christ that saves you. It is only faith alone, because of God's grace alone, for his glory alone, in Jesus alone. Friends, May we not be so easily persuaded by what will be true in the future and is present now today. False prophets, false Christs, who do not measure the test of Scripture. Jesus is saying that here. He is saying, hey, be aware of these times. Secondly, Jesus says, be encouraged by God's care for his people. So first thing, be aware of growing wickedness. Secondly, be encouraged by God's care for his people. Look at back to what it says in verse 22. And if in those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And then later on it says in... Uh, we can see here in verse, 25, verse 24, so as if it was possible, so as to lead astray even the elect, which is not possible. And then, as it says in verse 31, 
He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and call and gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. What I find so encouraging in this text is that God has not forgotten his people. You can clearly see what Jesus is promising is that things will be bad, but God's people will not be forgotten. He will even adjust, he will even alter the timeline of humanity in order to preserve his people, to care for his people. He is reiterating the terrible suffering of those future days. Yet we see here this is a proverbial way of God saying even then he is in control. Control of even the craziness that's happening around at that time. Now friend, this should encourage you because this sort of tips God's hand of how God treats his people. Be it in the future as we're reading about or be it in the present as we're living today, things in your life can seem profoundly difficult and dark. As we are clearly seeing here in the scriptures for days yet still to come, yet God sees and God cares. And what's interesting is that seeing and caring does not mean the removal of hardships. There are consequences to a fallen world. And we see that. If you go back, if you will, to verse 9 of chapter 24. Jesus, speaking to the disciples, says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And he speaks again about the false prophets that are coming in verse 11. And in the middle of all of this, Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom is still being proclaimed. So God, in the mystery of his will, is allowing difficulty to come upon his people's lives, but never to the point of destroying them, in any way letting go of them, even as we heard in the song that we sung, he will hold me fast. The people of Israel, as we see in the, throughout the Old Testament, are often referred to as God's elect. Isaiah 45 but what we see here in this reference of what Jesus is talking about is believing Christians, God loving his people, those who are in Christ by faith alone, those as we see in Ephesians chapter one, that he has set a particular good, sweet anointing work upon, how he loves them and knows them and protects them. This begs an obvious question for this room. And the question is, how are you so confident in your future? It is curious to me how people, indeed, are wondering what the future will be like, but then want to go back to their merry ways and not give it much more thought. Which is what Jesus is saying here at our third point and final point, be mindful of coming judgment. So Jesus says, be aware of growing wickedness. Secondly, be encouraged by God's care for his people. But third, be mindful of a coming judgment. And let's put it back in its context. Verse 23. Excuse me. Verse 26. Excuse me, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days of the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers over the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with 
power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. What's the lesson? As soon as this branch becomes tender and put out, puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The future for many is a topic of concern and for others, great hope. There's no easier way to see this than when you go to a funeral. You see, a funeral makes you stare at this question. The question is, what is my destiny? You know, there are four basic questions in life. Where did I come from? What is the meaning of life? How am I supposed to live while I'm here in this life? And what happens after this life? And honestly, a lot of people don't have answers to those questions, and they don't want to stop and actually be held responsible for those answers, either because they don't want to appear to be ignorant or they don't want to be held accountable to the reality of the answers to those questions. But death, no more painfully marked than at a funeral, death reminds you there's more than this. The question is, what is more than this? And it's amazing to me how people at funerals clean everything up and really start to tell themselves things that they believe to be true, but they just kind of are making it up. And sometimes you even hear them make the statements, well, you know what I believe? Well, you know what I think? Here's what I like to tell myself. But the question is, why do you believe that? What's the source of those thoughts? Where is it you're so confident placing your future on? Just personal premonitions? Just exaggerated experiences or the passing on of fables from others? Where is your authority? Well, the Word of God gives us such authority to be confident and sure that we can know that we can have hope in our future no matter what is coming in our future if we are with Christ. Because what you saw in that text is this description of Jesus as he describes the Son of Man. That is, as we've learned throughout the book of Matthew, this, re this reference to his greatness, his prophecy, his divinity, how remarkable this is. And what we're seeing here is he's describing his future return when he will coming, be coming on the cloud of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And the question is, are you ready for that day? If I can be honest, on behalf of many of you here today, you're not ready. And the reason, and with not an ounce of judgmentalism do I mean this, is if I can read your mind, but just simply knowing the profession and the commitment of your life, you're not ready because you have never surrendered your life to Christ. So when the king returns, for many of us, what a reunion it will be. 
faith made sight. Hope realized. But sadly and tragically, for countless others, perhaps even for others here this morning, it'll be a horrific sight because then it's over. The time is up. As Paul says in Acts chapter 17, he would return to judge the world according to his righteousness. And no one will stand based on their own righteousness. We've never done enough good works. We cannot remove our record. God knows everything we've ever done. And it's only wiped away. It's only removed as far as the east is from the west. It's only made red from red to white as scarlet as snow is white. As we can see, only by faith in Christ. The question is, have you surrendered? From the reality is, that future could be coming sooner for others because it doesn't simply depend upon his return, though that could come at any time. It could even be conditional upon your death, which is the end of your time. What we're seeing here in the scriptures is that Jesus is calling us to live godly lives in the present. The study of the future should spur us to godly living here and now. Jesus is basically saying here in verse 25, see, I've told you ahead of time. He's standing in the middle of the prophecy of these near future events in AD 70 and the ultimate end of the life events. He's saying, listen, how are you living today in light of what you're expecting tomorrow? That says a lot about what your view of the future is. So I end the way I began. Where are you investing? Where are you willing to put your assets that God has given? Should not be in companies as your ultimate hope. Should not be in spouses or children or possessions. Those things will come and go. It should be in Christ, the Son of God, who will return for his people, loving them, welcoming them, and everybody else, as it says clearly in the text, he will indeed judge righteously. Because why? Because the very thing you've always longed for, God to be just, he is. He is. And only those whose faith is in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins are forgiven. And I pray that that's where you invest your life today. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.